James chapter 3, I'll read the first 12 verses. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. You may be seated. Well, if you have your, your Bibles open to the book of James, we'll be looking today and continuing our series of sermons on this book, and we find ourselves today in James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> the meanest member in church. The teaching here is on the use of words and the use of the tongue, and I think it is also significant to notice that it directly follows chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, where James has specific teaching on faith and works. And he especially highlights how that works are such an important indicator of where our heart is and what has transpired in our heart spiritually. Our works indicate the condition of our heart. And I think it, is, it follows kind of naturally in the uh, discussion here, in the discourse here, uh, the flow of things here in James 3, that our words are some of the greatest works that we ever participate in. <clears throat> James is reminding us that our works are not only limited to things that we do with our hands, but they include our words, our speech. In fact, I tend to believe, especially after studying and refreshing myself on this passage here, that our words or our speech are perhaps some of the greatest works, the most important, the most vital, the most easy to overlook works that we will ever engage in. Now James has already spoken several times already in the book about our words and the use of the tongue. For instance, in James chapter 1 verse 19, he said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
In chapter 1, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and brighteth not his tongue, but he deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. In James chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So speak ye, and so do. The challenge is to have our words line up with our actions or with our profession so that we can be judged as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. He continues there. And that theme continues throughout the rest of the book as well. In James chapter 4 verse 11, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. And so on. James chapter 5 verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. These 12 verses here before us today fall into four categories or four sections. At least that's the way I organize them. Four truths that we must recognize in order to tame our tongues. Four truths to recognize. First of all, to tame the tongue, we must recognize that we will be held accountable for what we say. Now James here, as he has done in chapter 1 and 2, and as he does in chapter 4 and 5, he begins with the words, my brethren. In all of these verses that I showed you, he uses and he addresses the people that he's talking to as brethren. I actually find that very encouraging. Notice how he begins this chapter, my brethren. And two other times in these verses, Three times in 12 verses, he addresses the people that are reading as his brethren. He is speaking to those in the church. He is not speaking down to them. These are words of endearment and connection and words of understanding. When you address somebody as a brother, you're putting yourself on their level. And James, as a mature, experienced leader, is doing that very same thing. Notice the pronoun we in verse 2. In many things we offend all. Mature, experienced leader that James is, he realizes that he also stands in need of Jesus' grace. And then further, I'm also sobered as I notice in verses 1 and 2, that he especially addresses this passage to teachers. Folks like me. James points out the weight of teaching and the responsibility that goes along with a teacher's words. He is aware that he's giving this address to people or that as he is giving this address that people will give him, James, a higher level of scrutiny. And that's true for all teachers. I want to be concerned about that as I go through this sermon today. We all stumble 
in many ways, James says. And he goes on to say that those who are perfect, and that word actually means mature. The word perfect as it's used in the King James Version in the New Testament means mature or developed or of, of uh, full grown. Those who are able to control their tongues are mature. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to control the whole body. Again, I find that very sobering. And he calls to attention the fact that people who can do well with their speech, control themselves, are disciplined in that way, are usually disciplined in other important ways. And I think the, the rest of the text actually teaches us very clearly that the opposite is true as well. When a person is not disciplined in his words, you will usually find a person who is also in trouble or not disciplined in other ways as well. Verses 1 and 2 tells us that there is a certain inherent prestige that comes to being a teacher. There are qualifications. There are things that are evaluated. In order for a person to be a teacher, there needs to be a certain degree of learning. The assumption is that you are familiar with what you are teaching, with what you are sharing, with what is being brought forth, whether it's in school or in church or in business or in any other form of teaching. The understanding is that you have a level of, of uh, understanding. And because of this, there are built-in dangers that a person takes upon himself or herself when they are in the office of teaching, whether it's in the church or in other places. And those that take this position are opening themselves up to fall into pride, the temptation of pride. If a man goes into teaching the Bible, there is a secret desire for status or recognition that can easily attach itself to that role where a person ends up doing it for self instead of for the Lord. And James's point is that a man should not take on the role of teacher unless God has called him to it. Because teachers, he says, incur stricter judgment, a higher level of scrutiny, more criticism, and so on. We who teach God's word are going to be held more accountable because our words affect more people. Anytime we speak, or choose not to speak for that matter, we should keep in mind the serious fact that we stand before the Lord to give account. <clears throat> Jesus in Matthew 12 verses 36 to 37 says, but I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words, this is interesting, Jesus says, by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Almost sounds like justification by works, right? <clears throat> but like James, the teaching is that our works reveal 
what is already inside of us. Our words, as part of our works, reveal and they expose what is already going on in our hearts. Whether our faith is actually genuine faith or if it's fake faith. Our words either validate that we are true believers or they reveal otherwise that we do not know God. And if we sin with our speech, the way to freedom is to ask God's forgiveness and also for the forgiveness of those that we have sinned against. Genuine believers have this sense of being accountable for their speech, just like James exhibits here in these first two verses. Genuine believers have the sense of being accountable for their speech. To tame the tongue, we must recognize that we will be held accountable for what we say. Secondly, to tame the tongue, we must recognize its power for good or for evil. Look at these next verses. James uses two analogies, two ideas. He uses two large um, yeah, the one, a horse, and the other, a ship, much mightier than a man, but yet able to be controlled by a man. The analogy here is that the tongue is small in comparison to all of the, 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 our body, our anatomy. Small but mighty. The bit and the rudder are analogies of the tongue, a horse and a ship, the two most obvious forms of transportation at that time. A bit, as we know, is a very small object that's put into a horse's mouth, probably weighs less than a pound or in, in that range. It's a small instrument, small in comparison to the horse. But when it's put into a horse's mouth, it has the ability, it gives the owner, the rider, the driver, the ability to control that large 2,000 pound beast or more. The same thing is said of a ship's rudder. Usually underwater, not able to be seen when the ship is in water. It's out of sight usually. It's small in comparison to the overall size and scale of that ship. But when a rudder, when a, a captain has his hand on the wheel of that ship, the pilot of that ship can, steal that, can steer that massive ship even in a strong wind, even in a storm, even when the waters are not cooperating with the direction of that ship. James' point is not that the tongue controls the body, but he's bringing out the idea or the, the example of how small the tongue is in proportion to the rest of our physical body. Sort of like a bit in a horse's mouth or a rudder is to a ship. It's a small part of the body and yet it boosts Great things, he says. Boasteth great things. James is saying, don't underestimate the power of the tongue. Because if you do, you won't be able to tame it. Our knowledge of the ability 
that our tongue carries is a starting point. <clears throat> if you control the tongue, it has the ability to direct your whole life into something that's acceptable in God's sight. If you don't control the tongue, conversely, it has the ability to get you into big trouble. The bit and the rudder most must overcome opposing forces in order to direct the horse or the ship. <clears throat> a horse can do an unusual amount of work, can do large and useful work, but only if it can be directed. A ship is useful in transportation, cargo, or people, but if the rudder is broken, it will be completely at the mercy of the wind or of the, the direction of, that the water is taking it. To work properly and accomplish good things, both the bit and the rudder must be in control, must be under the control of the hand that is guiding that object, such as the rider or the pilot. The ship is only good according to the person that controls that bit or that rudder. In that same way, the tongue needs to be guided by the Holy Spirit. The tongue needs to be guided by a life that has been transformed. And when that happens, the ability for one to overcome the force of the flesh and be under the control of God is, is, uh, is a, a key point there. <clears throat> the book of James, as we have already pointed out at times, is closely connected to the Old Testament. I think at least part of that is because the book of James is perhaps the first book of the New Testament that was written. The New Testament was not compiled. And so when the early church talks about the scriptures, as you're going through the book of Acts and you see references to the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament. And so James is well-versed and steeped in the language of the Old Testament. And especially in the book of Proverbs, perhaps, it has much to say. The book of Proverbs has much to say about the tongue, either for good or for evil. And I've just picked out a few. Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Proverbs 16, 24. Pleasant words are as an honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Proverbs 16, 27 to 28. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. A forward man soweth strife, and a whisperer separateth chief friends. <clears throat> imagine, imagine if we were, would have come here this morning, and all of us would have had been carrying, or maybe would have had some kind of sword strapped to ourselves. If all of us would have had a sword like that, razor sharp, two-edged, seems to me it would have taken some kind of feat for us to all walk out of here without having been cut in some way or another. And yet that's exactly how it is with our tongues. All of us came into this building here today with our tongues. 
They are part of our anatomy. They are attached to us. We can use them to bring much harm. And in the same way, conversely, we can also bring much healing and, and, uh, and blessing. I've just picked out a few of what I consider to be the greatest forms of verbal poisoning. I think one can, that I have thought of is the form of sarcasm. When you use things that are actually true and you mix in some wit to point out contempt or to direct hurt onto the other person, where you use, you state the truth, where you say things that actually happen, you use it in a form of irony or wit to reflect badly on another person. Another one is the form of gossip. Gossip is the telling of stories that are not true, especially to the to people that are not part of the story, where you pick out a third party and you unload on that person, giving them stories about someone or something, whether it's true or not, is kind of beside the point. Flattery, on the other hand, is the act of praising someone, usually insincerely. It's because you want something from that person, and so you say something good or say something nice to their face, but what you're actually doing is wanting to do something for yourself. It has nothing, there's nothing there for the other person. I came across an interesting quote this week, and I'll repeat it for good measure. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to a person that you would never say behind their backs. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery, on the other hand, is saying something to a person's face that you would not say behind their back. <clears throat> if all of us would read the book of Proverbs frequently and pay attention to its wisdom, there's a lot to be learned in this one book. It would be a source of sweetness and healing in our homes and in our churches. James wants us to recognize that we will be held accountable for how we use our tongues, especially those of us who teach God's word, those of us who are in some form of leadership, whether it's parents or in some kind of workplace environment, wherever we are where we are in charge or we're responsible in some way. The teaching is that we are especially responsible for those who are coming after us. And I think fathers, especially in the home, fathers have a huge role in this thing. <clears throat> Several more there from Proverbs. Four truths to recognize. Number three, to tame the tongue we must recognize that it is a humanly untamable source of evil. An untamable source of evil. Humanly untamable, I should add there. James uses two more word pictures for comparison and contrast. He uses the illustration of a forest fire and tamed animals, large wild animals that are under the control of a trainer. Many of us have noticed the terrible fires in the state of California of late. The destruction is just 
mind-blowing, almost unimaginable. And all it takes for thousands, tens of thousands of acres to be destroyed is some careless cigarette butt or an unattended fire, a small hot coal, perhaps some sparks from a transformer or electric wire. And forest fires are the result usually of some careless, mindless act. And it controls and it burns or extinguishes thousands, thousands of acres of forest. Under control, we know the power and the use of fire. It is one of the most valuable resources to man. But out of control, it is frightening, scary, devastating. Forest fires are just devastating. <clears throat> and in verse 6, James directly states that the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. And scholars debate how to translate and punctuate that verse, but however it is done, the point is clear. The tongue has the ability to cause much destructive heat, in a, in a, whether it's whether it's to another person or about another person or about something, it has a huge role. It just like a forest fire, if it's unattended, can destroy lots and lots of, of uh, valuable resources. <clears throat> James goes on to say that one who is careless with the tongue it will be the, is the first to be defiled. Look at verse 6. Boy, James doesn't mince words there, does he? The tongue is a fire. He says, a world of iniquity. And so is the tongue among our metal members that it defileth the whole body. There is a stain. There is a blot. There is a mark. And you ladies are probably more sensitive to, to this at least than I am, or many, maybe most of us men. You understand more clearly how that a small spot on your dress, the rest of the dress can be perfectly fine, but that small spot makes it unwearable. And it's sort of like that, in that same way. That small blight, that small spot that we have on our lives, maybe it's the only spot on our lives, it defiles the whole body, he says. It defiles all the members. We need to use our tongues with great caution, just like spiritual arsonists cause great destruction with their tongues, lighting careless fires with the use of their words. <clears throat> and James points out that the one who is careless with his tongue is usually the first that's defiled. And the unchecked tongue is a very world of iniquity. It defiles the whole body. Again, that harks back to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If a man seems to be religious, or says to be religious, or has the profession of being something, or being loyal, and is not careful with his tongue, it destroys an entire life. And then James goes one step further, and he identifies the source of this fire. He identifies the ultimate problem. He says that it is set on fire of hell. The word hell here in the Greek is the word Gehenna. 
And it's interesting because it's a transliteration of two Hebrew words translated into Greek, of course. First, the first uh, transliteration, the first Hebrew word that's called in the, uh, into the picture is the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom was right outside the city of Jerusalem. And it was a place where in the Old Testament, during the time of the kings, when they fell into the sins of Molech, and they fell into extreme and ungodly idolatry, they sacrificed babies to these gods. And it was in the Valley of Hinnom where this happened. And this valley later, during the time of Jesus, when he was here on earth, and also, of course, James, who was Jesus' half-brother, must have had some sort of impression on the word Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. Because in Jesus' time, it was the city dump. It was the place where birds and scavengers and dogs, and it was a place of stench and continual burning. The only other New Testament, the only other times that the word Gehenna is used in the original was in the Gospels, used by Jesus himself. Eleven times Jesus used this word Gehenna to refer to a place of eternal torment. Hell is what we know it. And James means that this evil tongue is set on fire by Satan himself, the real source behind this deadly member is Satan himself. You know, many of us Christians shrink back from sins like homosexuality. Or we shrink back from sexual abuse, especially of children. And we shrink back from actions such as murder and Things like that. And we attribute them to some sort of satanic power. But yet at the same time, if we're not real careful, we put up with and or participate in things like gossip or slander or deceit, half-truths, sarcasm, and other sins of the tongue as if they're sort of no big deal. And James says that all, the, all sins had their origin in the pit of hell. They defile the one committing them. They defile and destroy others. As a believer of Christ, it is so important for us to confront these sins in our lives and to get control of, of these with the power, with God's help. <clears throat> James goes on to use an analogy now from the animal world. And if you have ever been, had the opportunity of visiting SeaWorld or perhaps a more local aquarium, I remember a couple of years ago being at the aquarium in Baltimore and watching the incredible um, uh, show of the dolphins and, and sea lions and those kinds of things, seals and dolphins. And at a circus, if you've ever been at one, you'll see elephants and lions and tigers and other wild animals that are under the control of the trainers. But James says that while those kinds of beasts can be tamed, while those kinds of beasts can be controlled by man, the tongue actually can no man tame. Our tongue cannot be tamed on our own strength. 
Our tongue cannot ever come under the power of any man, ourselves. The Holy Spirit is needed. The work of God in our lives is what's needed. The continual sanctification of his word, the flow of, of his word into our lives, is what sets us on that course. I find it very interesting. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, for example. We know them. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against there, such there is no law. And I can easily think of how at least five or six of those have direct connection to words. The fruit of the Spirit is never more evident in our lives than in what we say and how we express ourselves, the choice of words that we use, our condemnation of people and of situations and of things, either shows that we are controlled by the flesh or by the Spirit in many incidents. An evil tongue is a tool of an evil heart. And that's James' final point. Number four, to tame the tongue, we must recognize that its inconsistencies are rooted in its source. Verses 9 to 12. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. James points out the, the gross inconsistency that he no doubt has observed in his own life. And we've observed, every single one of us sitting here this morning, we've, we've had times where we've seen this. Where somebody has said something about us or to us. We've seen the inconsistency. <clears throat> a forked tongue saying one thing to one person and something completely different to another person. James here, in contemporary terms, is like Christians saying, Praise the Lord in one breath. We meet each other after church here and we say, Have a good week. But we leave this place, and the first thing that comes to our, the first part of our discussion on our way home from church is, did you see so-and-so? He or she makes me sick. He or she is such a hypocrite. Did you hear what so-and-so did? And so on. James, in typical manner, is so direct In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And then he points out what often happens among Christians and how that is so contrary to all of nature. This forked tongue business, saying one thing to one person, And turning around and saying something completely different about the same person to another person. Nature is contrary to this. The same spring, he says, does not yield both salt water and fresh water. A vine 
a grape arbor does not bear figs. Neither does an olive tree produce grapes. A fountain does not send fresh water or bitter at the same fountain. James' point is the same point that Jesus used in Matthew 12, verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. And there's more in, those, in, that, in that context that I'm not going to take the time to look at. He also said in Matthew 15, verse 18, A wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that, sloweth, he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. And actually, I think that might be Proverbs. The mouth is simply the opening that vents. The mouth is simply the opening that reveals what's inside of us. If there's raw sewage in the heart, there's going to be raw sewage coming from your mouth. If there's bitterness and anger in your heart, it's going to come out in your words. Proverbs 4, verse 23. One of, every time I read this verse, I think of the fact that it hung in our living room or in our kitchen growing up. And I think it's also ironic that this plaque, this wall motto, hang above, hung above the phone. A wall-mounted phone. Whoever hears of something like that nowadays. But this plaque hang above, hung above the phone. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Instructive. Have you ever thought about how terribly embarrassing it would be if there were a complete open channel from our heart to our mouth, from our, our, to our words, where the things you think would come right out? I'm glad that's not the case for me. And I'm sure that's all the, for all of us. When you meet somebody and you say, I'm pleased to meet you, and instead would come out, I could care less about you. Or if you're meeting someone after church here and you're about to say, have a good week, out comes... I hope you fall flat on your face this week. Can you imagine that? I'm not suggesting that we should abandon politeness in any way or that we should become brutally blunt in our words. I do not think that James is saying that we should never ever confront each other, but not in a roundabout way. And furthermore, our words and our actions, our heart need to be dominated by the Spirit of God and the grace that God has given us should pour out into the lives of people around us. And furthermore, we have the ability to take control of our thoughts. We have the ability as human beings to, to channel the, our thinking. And that's a, a subject of its own. And we'll refer to that maybe just in a bit. Actually, I'll just put that up here. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's the verse that I especially wanted. But if you have a moment, look at the surrounding verses and some of the instructions there. The same can be said about Ephesians. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And I think it's so interesting that the filling of the Spirit is in direct connection with the words that come out of our mouth, the use of our tongues. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks. You see, how we think controls how we say, how we talk. Giving thanks for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Psalm 119 verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And again, the text here in Ephesians makes it clear that we can't do that if we have not received that grace in our own lives. A little acronym that I came across as I studied. Before you speak, think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Before you speak, think. As I close, I'm going to leave you with 12 words that at least in my, in my mind as I studied this week, I find this a call to courtesy. This subject, a call to common courtesy. 12 words that I think have the ability to transform our lives especially if it's done in sincerity. It has the ability to transform our minds. It has the ability to transform people around us. Your situation might stay exactly the same, but it will completely change how you view the situation. Twelve words to transform your life. Please and thank you. When you use these words, you are treating other people like people and not things. You are showing appreciation. The words, I'm sorry. These words have a a way of breaking down walls and building bridges. And especially when when you're specific about what you're sorry for. Especially when you're specific about where you have failed. And especially if you build on that and say how you're going to do it different in the future. These words, I admit, can also be used sarcastically, where somebody is confronting you about something and you just say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know what I'm saying? But done sincerely, they have a a way of breaking down walls and building bridges. The words, I love you. Too many of us only read romance into these words. And I'm saying they go way beyond that. They go way beyond that. In fact, perhaps we should train ourselves as a culture not to connect these words so strongly to romance and verbalize our love for each other. When you're sitting down with a person or before you leave, perhaps even here today, put your arm around a person and say, I love you. You're putting weight on that person. You're putting worth on that person, value. 
We should say this frequently to our children, especially as fathers. We should frequently speak these words. The Bible tells us that we should speak these words to our enemies. I love you is a statement that carries tremendous power. And then the words, I'm praying for you. Again, it needs to be done sincerely. Be sure that you actually are when you say these words. But when you talk, well, let me say it this way. It is when you talk to God about people that you are qualified to talk to people about God. It is when you are actually talking to God about people that you are qualified to talk to people about God. Say this in an encouraging way. It should never imply that you're more spiritual. You should never use these words and say, oh, I'm really praying for so-and-so. Or even to that person's face, you say, I'm praying for you. It's a way of, it can easily project itself as being more spiritual than that person. I'm more spiritual than you. That's why I'm praying for you. It should never be done in that way, of course. It should never be done in a boastful way. But telling others that you are praying for them is to let others know that you care about them. You care enough about them to mention them to God, to bring them to the throne of grace. Telling others that you're praying for them brings them to the throne of grace. And that's exactly what all of us need, what I need for myself. One of the smallest members of our body has the ability to be the meanest. And James very clearly points that out. In fact, much of his instruction here is to the negative. And a good bit of my sermon has been to the negative because I've been following the text here. It doesn't have to be to the negative. The power of our words to bring healing and to bring motivation and inspiration is, is also very strong. God can help us to use our tongues to bless and to heal and to build up and to direct others, to point others in a better direction, a better way of life. My prayer is that I and that all of us could commit our words and our tongue to God and to ask him to use our words and our tongues to be a blessing to others.